Good morning. My name is Rebecca Charles, and I'll be doing the reading for today's sermon. We'll be in Exodus, Exodus chapter 28, 1 through 5, and, 42, and 41. Exodus chapter 29, 1 to 21, and 35 to 41. Then bring near to me, to you, Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abahu, Eleazar and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garment to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cake mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers married with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it, pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You shall take part of the, you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out on the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and watch its entrail and its leg and put them with its species and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. 
Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen and beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and, it sh and shall offer it with a green offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, All right, so uh, I wasn't on there, but now here I am. So hello again. Um, hey, so uh, if you're just joining us today, we're in the midst of the series. Where we're walking through the book of Exodus. And this morning, what we're doing is we're working through some of the chapters that you skipped in your most recent Bible reading plan, right? Like a whole lot of good intentions to read through the whole of the Bible have died right here in the middle of the book of Exodus. I'm not wrong, am I? And, uh, and I get it. I get it. Um, these chapters in the second half of Exodus, they can be a little tedious to read. Some of y'all were, were uh, falling asleep right there as Rebecca was up here. All right? I didn't see it, but I just knew it. I knew it. Um, but but the, the reality is that these chapters, they're not like that finance class that you dropped back in college. Right? Like these chapters were not put here to weed out the people who aren't really serious about God. That's not why they're here. On the contrary, uh, like Phil talked about last week, God put these chapters in the middle of Exodus. He put them here to drive deep into the hearts of his people some really important concepts. He wants, he wants to drive some stuff into our hearts. And as we look at chapters 28 and 29 of Exodus today, there's one central concept that comes into focus. And it's the concept of holiness. Holiness. Now we don't talk about holiness all that often these days. Like culturally... Uh, when you think about the word holy, if you were to play the word association game, the word holy might bring to mind a phrase like a holy roller, someone who's like uber religious. Or, or maybe it brings to mind Indiana Jones' quest for the holy grail. Or uh, Steph Curry's new putt-putt golf TV show, Holy Moly. 
Or, or locally, here in Chicago, Harry Carey's famous, holy cow, right? Like, when we think about holiness, those might be the phrases that come to mind. But rarely do we actually stop and talk about holiness itself. But holiness is all over our text today. The Hebrew word for holy shows up a whopping 26 times in these two chapters alone. Anywhere in this text that you see the adjective holy or the verb consecrate, it's the same Hebrew word. And the word itself means to be set apart, as opposed to being common every day. So it's kind of like your grandmother's nice set of china. Right? Like, you don't get out your grandma's nice set of china to eat some hamburger helper. Like, you get out the hamburger helper when you're having filet mignon. That stuff is set apart. The, the nice china is for particular, specific, special purposes. And that's the basic idea behind holiness. It's set apart. But then in the Bible, that meaning of holiness gets filled out more fully as we look at the holiness of God. God himself gives definition to holiness. If you want to know what holiness is, if you want to understand holiness, you have to look at the holy God to get it. God himself is untainted, unstained, undefiled. He's good and right and true. He's clean and pure and perfect in every way. So if you want to understand holiness, you need to look at God because God defines holiness. And holiness is everywhere in our text this morning. So this morning, we're going to talk about holiness. And in this text in Exodus, we see three things in particular as it pertains to holiness. The need, the lack, and the provision. The need, the lack, and the provision. That's where we're going. So first, the need. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. God says to Moses there, Bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Now the context where all of this is happening, you remember it's God's instructions to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. So God and Moses are having this conversation up at the top of the mountain. And last week, God gave Moses instructions for building the tabernacle, God's earthly home. And this week, uh, we're looking at where God gives these instructions to Moses up at the top for the priests who are going to serve in the tabernacle. And here God calls one person in particular, Moses' brother Aaron, to be the high priest. Aaron's sons are going to serve underneath him, but the focus of these chapters is on Aaron, who's going to be the high priest. Now, many of us here today have jobs. And uh, Aaron's job was to be the high priest. And for some of you, uh, your jobs, they come with uniforms. Like you got some kind of getup you got to get into before you go to work in the morning, right? You got a uniform. And Aaron's job came with a uniform too. Now your getup might be like an apron or a, a certain colored shirt you've got to wear or maybe a certain type of shirt or, or, uh, or, or maybe it's some coveralls you put on. You're going to get grungy during the day. Or, or, or maybe some of y'all are really balling and so you put on a suit and tie, like really looking fresh when you go to work. But like you put, on, you put on a uniform, right? And Aaron, Aaron's job had a uniform, but his uniform was unlike anything that any of y'all got to wear. His uniform was unique. And so in verse 2, Moses is told to make holy garments for Aaron. These garments are to be for glory and for beauty. And they're to be produced by the most skillful of the people. So bottom line, we're not going over to Target to get these clothes. Like these things are, this is Vera Wang, Giorgio Armani, this is straight Gucci, right? Like he is dressed to the nines. This uniform is ballin' and it's nothing less than the very best for Aaron. And verse 4 tells us that there were six items in the uniform. There's a colorful breast piece. There's an ephod, which was like a kilt. Uh, there's a blue robe, a coat, a turban, and a sash. 
And we could read through the rest of chapter 28 and all the details of each of these items in order to try to imagine what it would have looked like. But it might be easier for you to just see it. So I think we've got a picture of it that we're going to throw up here. You can check out. This is Aaron's uniform based on the description in chapter 28. Pretty snazzy digs, right? It's looking all right. Now, at the end of verse 3, we see the purpose of this whole outfit. Verse 3 finishes with the line, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So this uniform is given to Aaron in order to consecrate him, to set him apart, to make him holy for God's priesthood. And you can see that reality as you look at the garments themselves. So for starters, all the materials that are used here, they're the same materials that were used in the construction of the tabernacle. So you have actual pieces of gold woven into it. You have blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And you have fine twined linen. These were holy materials. And then verse 35 tells us, and you can see it up here, that on the hem of Aaron's robe, there was this series of bells that were sewn into it. And these bells, they were put on Aaron so that whenever he entered the holy place, whenever he entered God's earthly throne room, Aaron would literally jingle. He'd make noise when he came in. And that jingling would signify to God that Aaron had put on the uniform. That he had taken all the necessary precautions before he entered into God's presence. The bells sounded the alarm that Aaron was holy, that he had set himself apart. And if the sound wasn't heard, verse 35 tells us what would happen to Aaron. It says, so that he does not die. That's how serious the holiness is here. And then verse 36 talks about this plate of pure gold that God put on the front of Aaron's turban. And what does the, pr- the plate read? It says, holy to the Lord. Aaron puts this hat on that reminds him and everyone else who sees him that when he is dressed for work, he is set apart for God. He's holy. Now what's the point? The point is that Aaron needs this uniform in order to be consecrated for his job. He needs this particular uniform in order to be holy enough for the job that God is giving him. So what exactly was that job? Well, priests in the ancient world were everywhere. Everybody knew what a priest was. And a priest's job, the role of a priest, was to be that of a mediator, a go-between, a representative. So a priest stood in the gap between people and God and represented each party to the other. And so on the shoulders and on the chest of Aaron's uniform, you can see these precious stones that he wore. And the text tells us that each of these stones was engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verse 29, in verse 35, in verse 43, they all talk about Aaron then entering into the holy place before the Lord, God's earthly throne room, wearing the names of the people because Aaron is going in, into the throne room, in order to represent the people before God. Aaron's job was to be a representative of the people of Israel before a holy God. That's why he's wearing this uniform. That's his job. And so the reason he needs this fancy uniform is because of what that job involves. You see, Aaron's job involved entering into the most holy space on the planet. Aaron's job involves entering into the very presence of God himself. Now, if you read through the Bible... And you look at the places where people encounter the presence of God. Every single time, without fail, what happens when they enter the presence of God is they are utterly overwhelmed by his holiness. 
They fall on their faces and they cry out things like, Woe is me, I am ruined. And the reason for that is because the holiness of God is just purely overwhelming. God is so holy, so set apart that his presence is wonderful, yes, but it's also terrifying. It's fascinating and it draws you in, but it's also overpowering and it pushes you away at the very same time. There's kind of an awfulness to the holiness of God because the holiness of God is incompatible with sin and with unholiness. And so it's like this. Holiness and sin are are mutually exclusive, kind of like water and oil. You know, like water and oil, they don't mix. They they don't go together, right? But, But this is actually more than that. It's not just what we see here. It's not just that they don't mix. It's actually that the one destroys the other. Like holiness and sin are incompatible in a way that holiness destroys sin. And so it's not, it's not exactly like water and oil. It's more like water and technology. It's like water and my iPad. Right? Like what happens if I take my iPad and I walk down to, uh, to, to Loyola Park and I walk out to the pier there and I walk to the end of it and I just drop this thing into the lake. What's going to happen to this thing? Like, Woe is me. I'm ruined. Right? Some of y'all have had that experience with some of your devices. It's terrible. Like what happens is the water and the technology are incompatible. They don't mix in a way that the water destroys. It overpowers, overwhelms, and destroys the technology. And it's the same with God's holiness and sin. It's not just they don't mix. It's that holiness destroys unholiness. And that's what happens when sin and imperfection and unholiness are going to enter the presence of a holy God. And so the point of chapter 28, the whole point of chapter 28, is that to enter God's presence, it requires complete holiness. Entering God's presence requires complete holiness. Sin cannot go in. Only holiness can. And that's why Aaron needed this uniform. This uniform, it's kind of like a vivid outward picture of what holiness looks like on the inside. This uniform is an outward representation of the kind of life and the kind of character that is required in order to enter the presence of a holy God. What God is saying through this uniform is that if you want to be able to stand before God, then your life needs to look like this uniform. Your heart, your character, Your thoughts, your actions, your whole life needs to be beautiful and glorious. It needs to be pure gold through and through. Sin can't go in. So if you want to enter the presence of God, you need holiness. So that's the first thing. We need holiness. Now here's the second. We lack holiness. We lack holiness. See, after the uniform of chapter 28, there's still chapter 29 to go before the priest can actually function in the role of priest. Chapter 29 begins, Now this is what you shall do to consecrate them, to actually then make the priest holy. And then the rest of this chapter walks through this elaborate ritual that must take place in order to make the priest holy. And the assumption running through all of it is that even in their fancy uniform, the priests are not holy. They lack holiness. 
So in verses 1 through 9, you have all these materials that are gathered. And then Aaron and his sons are gathered together. And they get dressed. And then they get anointed with oil. They've got the clothes on, but it's not enough. And so starting in verse 10, there's this series of three offerings that take place. And in each case, what happens is Moses brings a perfect, unblemished bull or ram to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting. And he has Aaron and his sons lay their hands on that animal in an act of identification with the animal. Symbolically, they're saying, this animal is me. What happens to this animal, I'm putting myself on this animal, and what happens to this animal happens to me. I deserve whatever happens to this animal. That's what they're doing. And what is it that happens to the animals? Verse 11. Then you shall kill the bull. Verse 16. You shall kill the ram. Verse 20. You shall kill the ram. These are the the, the animals in all three cases die. The priests identify with the animals and then the animals all die. These are three different offerings. A sin offering, a burnt offering, a wave offering, and each has different particulars for different purposes, but at the center of each one of them is the bloody death of an innocent animal. And in each of them, the blood from those animals is then thrown all over the place. On those beautiful new clothes, on the altar where the sacrifices happen, on the ears and on the thumbs and on the big toes of the priests, there's death and blood everywhere. And if you look down at verse 35, you'll see that this wasn't just a one-time thing. These sacrifices, with all the death and blood, they were to be repeated every day for a week. Seven straight days. And then if you look at verse 38, even after the priests were consecrated, still after all of that, every day in the morning and every day in the evening, for every day going forward, forever, there were more sacrifices yet to be had. They were still required to sacrifice yet another lamb with more death and blood every day. And so what you have all throughout this text is death and blood, death and blood, death and blood. Why? Why all the death and blood? Like, does God just hate PETA and want to make some animal rights activists really unhappy? I don't think that's it. Look at verse 36. The imagery here is powerful. And verse 36 is the key to understanding it all. In verse 36, do you see that word atonement? Atonement. That's what's happening here. To atone literally means to smear or to cover. And you can see that smearing and that covering all over this passage. That's what's happening with the blood. It's being smeared all over everything. It's covering everything. And the reason for that is that theologically, the blood acts like whiteout. Now, do y'all remember whiteout? I mean, some of y'all, some of you young folks, some of you guys, you don't even know what whiteout is, right? Like, so, so let me tell you, let me tell you a little about whiteout. So back in the day, we had these things called typewriters. And, and what a typewriter was, it was kind of like a computer, but a computer that couldn't do any of the stuff a computer does, right? So it, it, was like, it was like some keys that you would tap that would print some letters onto a piece of paper. And, and with a typewriter... Um, there was no delete button. Like if you made a mistake, you couldn't just hit delete. You couldn't just erase it. So what you had to do is you had to pull the paper out of the feed, and then you had to get out this stuff called whiteout, and you'd get it out of the bottle, and then you'd smear it over your mistake. You'd smear it on there to cover it over. 
Now, the whiteout didn't remove the error. The error was still there on the paper. But what it allowed you to do was to put it back into the typewriter so you could move on, so you could continue. That's how whiteout worked. So it didn't remove the error, but it covered it and allowed you to move forward. And that's the idea of atonement. What all the death and blood is doing here is atoning for the errors of the priests and the people. The priests need to be holy in order to approach God and to represent God. But all of this death and blood, it shows us how unholy they really are. When they lay their hands on those animals and they identify with them and then they watch them die, symbolically they are saying, that's what my sin deserves. That's how unholy I am. And that's how ugly and serious my sin is. And then when they take that blood and they smear it all over everything, symbolically they're saying that everything, my clothes, this altar, the tools I'm using, my head and my hands and my feet, all of it is so imperfect that it needs white out to cover it over. And so what all this death and blood shows us is how utterly gruesome and ugly and serious and pervasive sin is. In order to approach God, you need to be holy. If you're not, you deserve death like those animals. But all of this shows us that even the high priest lacks the holiness necessary for that task. Even the high priest in his fancy uniform isn't enough. In fact, while Moses and God are having this conversation, while they're up on top of the mountain talking about all of this, while God is giving Moses instructions for the high priest, do you know where Aaron, the high priest, actually is right at that very moment? He's down at the bottom of the mountain making a golden cow that all the people are going to bow down to and worship. Even the high priest lacks the holiness needed. Even the priests needed atonement for their sins and forgiveness for their unholiness. And if that's true for them, how much more is that true for us? How much more is that true for me? You know, one of the foundational concepts in the Bible is that of humanity's collective sinfulness. People are sinful. All of us. All of our lives, inside and out, need to look like the priest's uniform. But they don't. And accordingly, before a holy God, we deserve to die like those animals. And I know that this is not a popular idea in our particular cultural moment. Like, we've been trained throughout our whole lives by our adoring parents and by our conscientious conscientious guidance counselors to view ourselves as basically good people whose biggest problem is our low self-esteem. And generally, what we do then is we look around at everybody else and we see all the ways that everybody else screws up. And we use it to gather evidence in order to support the claim that we are, in fact, good people. But in reality, doing that is kind of like this. Um, At home... In my dresser, I've got some white undershirts. Like the the kind of shirt I would wear underneath the shirt like this if we had air conditioning in this auditorium. And uh, I've had these white undershirts for a little while now. And and, and if I look at these white tees, they look pretty good. You know, they look fresh and clean and they look white enough, good enough. But what happens if I go down to Target and I buy a package of brand new white tees? And I bring that new package home into my bedroom and I pull the old ones out of the dresser and I hold up the two next to each other. Well, all of a sudden, when I look at the brand new white tee and I see what a real white tee is supposed to look like, 
all of a sudden I realize how dingy and grimy and yellowed my old ones are. You know, before the old ones looked just fine. Compared to to the other old ones, they looked just great. But as soon as I see what the new one looks like, as soon as I see what the real deal looks like, I realize how ugly and old and dingy and yellowed the old ones are. And that's the reality of our lives too. We look at our moral track records and we compare ourselves to other sinful people and it all seems like it's all good. It's just fine. I'm good. I'm fine compared to them. But as soon as we hold up the real deal, blinding reality of God's holiness and we compare ourselves to that, then we realize how dingy and yellowed and worn out our lack of holiness really is. Even the priest's fancy uniform needed to be atoned for. How much more so are grimy, yellowed tees? And so your biggest problem in life, it's not your low self-esteem. It's your lack of holiness. It's your lack of holiness. So what we've seen so far in this text is the need for holiness and the lack of holiness. Now look at the end of chapter 29. Verse 45. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So these words here, they're they're God's summary statement of his purpose behind everything in chapters 28 and 29. And even beyond that, these words are a reminder of God's purpose for everything we've studied over the last few months in Exodus. Everything in Exodus has been about God saving a people so that they can then be in relationship with him and he can dwell with them. But in this text that we're looking at today, you have these conflicting ideas. Chapter 28 shows us that for God to dwell with his people, they must be holy. And chapter 29 shows us that God's people, even the holiest ones, are not holy. So what gives? How does God's desire for his people to dwell with him then become a reality? How can people with dirty shirts enter the presence of a holy God? Charles Spurgeon preached on this text over a a century ago, and he said that the fact that even the holiest things required daily cleansing and atonement was a sad subject. And all the death and the blood and the lack of holiness that we just talked about, y'all, that is a sad subject. But then Spurgeon turned his attention to what he called a glad subject. A glad subject. The fact that God himself provided a way for unholy people to be made holy. The glad subject here in this text is that God provided a tabernacle in which people could enter into his presence. And God provided a series of sacrifices to atone for sin. And God provided a high priest to do the work to make it possible for people to dwell with God. The glad subject of Exodus 28 and 29 is that God himself provided the needed holiness. But here's the thing about Exodus 28 and 29. The system from the very beginning, it was built with a fatal flaw. Like whiteout, the system never really removed the underlying problem. All it did was cover it over so that the people could move forward. And so because of that, it all had to be repeated over and over and over again. Every day there was death and blood, and the whole thing never stopped. 
And as you follow the history of Israel from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in Jerusalem, there's more death and blood. And in any season of Israel's life as a nation where they are even remotely committed to God, there are nonstop sacrifices with nonstop death and blood happening. And even with all of that nonstop death and blood, it only ever got direct access to God for one person, the high priest. And even the high priest only ever really got to enter God's presence one time a year when he went into the Holy of Holies. And so yes, God dwelt among his people. And, and yes, he put in the whiteout system so they could dwell with him. But the system never really worked. It never really dealt with the underlying problem. And so the system was like the Death Star in Star Wars. Built with a fatal flaw from the very beginning. But that fatal flaw, it was by design. Because from the very beginning, God had a bigger plan in mind. You see, God's purpose in implementing the priesthood and the sacrificial system was to drive deep into our hearts the dual realities of our need for holiness and our lack of holiness so that generations later, when we saw his provision of true holiness, we would grab hold of it and never let it go. So follow this story with me. Over the centuries following Exodus 29, the high priest continued to offer these sacrifices. Jewish history actually records a succession of high priests that lasted for over a thousand years, from Aaron to his son Eliezer to his son Phineas, and on and on down the generations. And in that over 1,000 year line of succession, around the year 18 AD, a man by the name of Caiaphas stepped into the job. And in that role, Caiaphas would regularly put on the uniform of the high priest and offer sacrifices. The death and the blood just kept going. And then one day, Around the year 30 AD, in his role as high priest, Caiaphas was presiding over the Jewish high court. And on that day, a trial came before him for a man accused of blasphemy. And you can see the transcript of it up on the screen behind me. The man, it was alleged, had claimed to be God himself. He'd gathered quite the following, and he'd stirred up quite the fuss. And the authorities were unhappy with him, and they wanted to put him to death. And so the man stood before the high priest, accused of the capital crime of blasphemy, with his life literally on the line. And Caiaphas said to him, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And the man answered with a cryptic but clearly affirmative reply. And so the high priest tore his clothes and then sentenced the man to a bloody death by crucifixion. And so Caiaphas, this high priest living in Jerusalem over a thousand years after Aaron, sentenced the perfect son of God to death and thereby unwittingly offered what proved to be the great and final sacrifice of atonement. Now the book of Hebrews is basically a commentary on Jesus in relation to the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11, it tells us every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never, never take away sins. Every other sacrifice Caiaphas ever made and every other sacrifice any priest ever made was all like whiteout. They covered over the sins so the people could move forward, but they never took away the error underneath. And so God remained in the holy place and only the high priest could go there and only once a year. But look at Hebrews verse 12. Hebrews 10 verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
And verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When Caiaphas sentenced Jesus to death, it was really Jesus who was offering himself on the altar. Caiaphas was a shadow as high priest, but Jesus Christ was the real thing. All of Caiaphas' offerings could never take away sins. They only put white out on them. But Jesus on the cross did way more than white out. You know, of all the people who have ever lived, there has only ever been one whose life looked like the high priest's uniform. Only Jesus wore the bright white tee. But just like those unblemished animals at at the tabernacle, Jesus took all the blemishes of our lives upon himself. He took off his uniform on our behalf and he put on our uniform. And then he was slaughtered in our place. He took the death that we deserve so that we don't have to. And so by his perfect offering, he perfected his people. He actually went underneath the whiteout and he hit the delete key. He took away sins once and for all because he actually paid for them with his perfect life. And y'all, that is the gladdest glad news in the world. We need holiness. But we lack holiness. But the glad news, the good news, the great gladdest news of all is that through Jesus Christ, God has provided the holiness that we need. And this fact has two major implications for us today. I'll finish with this. First, it means that we celebrate. It means that we celebrate. Y'all, because of what Jesus did on the cross, every wrong keystroke you've ever made has been deleted. Like your past sins have been deleted. Your unholiness, it's been deleted. It's gone. And so you don't need whiteout anymore. You don't have to splash sacrifices anymore. You, You don't have to offer sacrifice anymore. You don't have to splash blood on everything anymore. You don't need Aaron or Caiaphas or any high priest anymore. In fact, the whole sacrificial system is obsolete. It's like what Henry Ford did to the horse and buggy. Or what the computer did to the typewriter. Or what Apple did to the Sony Walkman. The new made the old completely unnecessary. Better than that, it's like what Luke Skywalker did to the Death Star. He blew that mug up. It's gone. And that is something to celebrate. That's something to get excited about. Like last weekend, some of y'all were down at Lollapalooza having a ball, right? Like you're singing your hearts out. You're dancing, having a great time. Or even this week, some of y'all were at a Cubs game and you're, you're like cheering your hearts out. You're erupting in praise when Javier Baez hits a home run. Like you know how to celebrate. And what we're talking about here today is a way bigger deal than Lollapalooza or Chicago sports. Like if you're a believer in Christ here today, then you have the holiness you need to approach the holy God. Because of Jesus, your great high priest, you have direct and total access to God now and forever. In fact, because of Jesus, you don't need to go to a tabernacle or a temple because you are a temple. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. You have that kind of access. And that is something to celebrate. And so today and every Sunday when we gather together and every day of your life, sing, worship, celebrate what God has done for you in Christ. Celebrate. But don't stop there. Because the second thing this means for us is that we need to consecrate. We celebrate, but then we consecrate. We consecrate. Look again at Hebrews 10, 14. It says, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering he has, past tense, 
perfected for all time, forever, those who are being, ongoing present tense, sanctified. So Jesus has already perfected those who believe in him. He had deletes on all their sins, past, present, and future. The unholiness is gone. But those same people are still then in an ongoing process of being sanctified. Do you know what the word sanctified means? It means to be made holy. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament consecrate. It means to be made holy. And so what this text is saying is that Jesus has already perfected people who are now in a process of being made holy. So it's kind of like this. Jesus took off his perfect uniform and he put on our dirty yellowed tee. But do you know what he then did with his perfect uniform? He gave it to you and me. He gave it to us. He put it on us. When you believe in Jesus Christ, he puts his uniform on you. And when he first puts it on you, it's way too big for you. Like it doesn't fit right. It feels kind of awkward. But he puts it on you anyway. And the reason he puts it on you is so that you can then grow into it. He gives you his outward outfit of holiness so that the rest of your life you can grow in practical holiness in every area of your life. And then he gives you his Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you in that growth, to enable you to do it. And so the point is that even though Jesus has taken away all of your unholiness, your holiness still matters. It still matters. When Jesus puts his uniform on you and he puts his Holy Spirit in you, he has a job for you to do. Like with the priest at the tabernacle, that uniform of holiness comes with some responsibilities. In fact, do you know what the New Testament calls believers in Christ? It calls us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you are a priest. You are God's representative in the world. There's a quotation that's often attributed to the famous 19th century Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. McShane is alleged to have said, The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And the greatest need of the people in your life is your personal holiness. What your kids need more than anything is a mom or a dad with godly character. What your girlfriend needs is a boyfriend committed to a life of purity and integrity and faithfulness. What your coworkers need is to witness a teacher or a lawyer or a barista or an analyst who doesn't compromise but does their work with honesty and integrity. What your neighbors need to see is someone whose life is fully consecrated to Christ in the way they use their time, talent, and treasure. And what the city of Chicago as a whole needs to see is all of us wearing Jesus' uniform as we live lives of faithfulness and godliness and radically ordinary holiness in our city. So today, let's celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And then let's consecrate ourselves to his service. Jesus gave you his uniform. So together, let's grow into it. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, and on our own, we have no business coming into your presence, talking to you. You're set apart, you are other, you are higher, you are better, you are more pure and clean and unstained than we could ever imagine. Your brightness is blinding in your holiness. 
And yet today, God, you have made a way. Through Jesus, you have made it possible for us to enter into your holy presence. We praise you today for the uniform that he put on himself in order to die in our place. And we praise you for the uniform that he has given to us so that we can come into your presence. I pray for us, God, that today we would celebrate that, that our hearts would sing with praise. And then far beyond that, God, that every day going forward, that we would consecrate ourselves to your service. That we would live holy lives in the world as we represent you as your priests in a city, in a world that needs it desperately. And God, would you use our holiness to grow your kingdom, to bring more people to see, uh, to enter into your presence around us. We praise you for that and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.